0: Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson.
1: We are, as a culture currently, rapidly moving toward a culture with a similar sexual ethic to what they would have known in first century A.D. Roman culture, a culture where there were no taboos regarding sexual behavior, and it was basically a free-for-all just as it is becoming today.
0: Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Acts. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Acts, chapter 11, verses 19 through 26, in a message titled, The First Christians.
1: Now, here's Pastor Brian. We are here once again in the book of Acts, and the the verse that I'm wanting to focus on today states that it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians, and so we're, we're kind of just looking at really the, the first Christians, that, that's, that's what I want to focus on today, but I want to just kind of give us a little bit of the, the background, just remind you previously we saw how we we saw how the gospel has been making its way you know from sort of from people group to people group and we saw how it transitioned through the ministry of peter it transitioned from the jewish world to the gentile world and in that story that we saw about cornelius the roman centurion who comes to faith in christ So that's where we see the transition from Jew to Gentile. Now, Cornelius was indeed a Gentile, but as I mentioned, uh, he was what you would call a God-fearer. So as a God-fearer, he was, even though he was a Gentile, he had an, an influence from the Jewish religion, and he had already to some degree embraced that without an actual conversion to Judaism. So by the time Peter comes to him with the gospel, Cornelius has already moved away from the idolatry that would have been his practice from his youth, and now he's, in in a sense, he's worshiping the one true God, even before Peter comes to him. And in the book of Acts, up until the point that we arrive at right now, every story that's been conveyed to us about those who have come to faith they've all come with some kind of uh, a connection in the past to Israel's ancient religion but when we come to the passage today and the people that are referred to in the passage today now this is the first group who has no connection to Judaism whatsoever so they're referred to here as the Hellenist and and these are just the rank and file basically the idolaters of their day. Now, in, in the world at that time, you were, either, you were either a Jew and you worship the one true God or you were engaged in some form of idolatry. And so these are people that had no influence from Judaism. So all of their background would have been essentially in idolatrous religion. And, and these men that we read about here, we, we don't even know what their names were but they were people that were scattered because of the persecution of Stephen. We read about that several weeks ago. And, and they have been traveling to these various locations and sharing the gospel. And when they come to the city of Antioch, they kind of just take a, a step of faith and say, well, why don't, why don't we just reach out to the Hellenists? Why don't we just see if these guys might be open to the gospel? And sure enough, as they do that, they find that they are very open to the gospel. And we read there that a great many people came to the Lord there in the city of Antioch. So let's talk about Antioch for a moment, just again to kind of set the background. So Antioch, and and I want you to notice now, so this is the first time that that the text records for us that there's ministry going on outside of the geographical boundaries of Israel, the promised land. Now, it could very well be that there were other things happening because the people that had come for Pentecost had probably by this time all gone back to their countries, and they they probably took the gospel with them. But as far as Luke is concerned, following the record here, this is the first place where Luke pinpoints that something substantial is happening outside of the land of Israel. So Antioch is uh, the capital of the Roman province of Syria. So this is in the region, but it's now crossed over into Syria. And Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman world at the time. So the only uh, larger cities would be Alexandria in Egypt and Rome itself. The The population at the time is estimated to have been uh, 500,000 plus. So it's a pretty substantial population in the city of Antioch. And it was an extremely cosmopolitan city. It was made up of... Romans, and Greeks, and Jews, and Persians, and Indians, and Chinese, and Africans, and it was very multi, you know, it was like a melting pot, as we would sometimes refer to those kinds of cities, and uh, it was really, in so many ways, it was the ideal place for the gospel to really begin to do what God intended it to do. And that, of course, was to reach the nations. And John Stott put it this way. He said, no more appropriate place could be imagined either as the venue for the first international church or as the springboard for the worldwide Christian mission. So it's, it's the ideal place. And really, as we follow the story, in a lot of ways, Antioch becomes kind of the new center of the gospel. As we go on in the story, Jerusalem sort of, you know, they, they sort of bogged down in their kind of a legalism. They're, they're kind of hung up on the, the Jewish question, and Jerusalem sort of loses its momentum as, as the center, and Antioch, in many ways, replaces Jerusalem as the center of, of gospel Outreach. So that's the city where these things are happening, and as we've already seen, it's the Hellenist that these men decide that they're going to reach out to. Now, there's a debate among uh, Bible expositors as to, you know, were the Hellenist were they God fearers like Cornelius? Were they people that had, you know, previous connection to Judaism? I don't think they did because it, in the text, it it talks about how these these preachers. Had up until a certain point, they'd only been sharing the gospel with with Jews or those who had a, a background in Judaism, but it says now they they're crossing this boundary. So I personally think that what they're going to now engage in is evangelism to those who have no no Jewish connection. I've already kind of hinted at that. So the Hellenists though. When you see that term, it it refers to those who spoke the Greek language and lived according to Greek culture and custom, including religion for the most part, unless it's a reference to Jews who spoke the language and adopted Greek culture but maintained their Jewish religion. But, But in this case, I think the religion here would be the idolatrous religions of the Greeks. And so, in other words, the people that the gospel comes to now are people who are immersed in humanism. Of course, the Greeks were the great philosophers of those centuries, so they they, they would be immersed in in humanism, in hedonism, in sexual immorality, and idolatry. So they're people just like us, people just like, like the people we live around. And It was from these Hellenists that a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So it was these people, the Hellenists, in this place, Antioch, that the believers were first called Christians, and and they were called Christians by those around them. They were basically called Christians because they didn't know what else to call them, and we'll look more at that in a bit. But I don't know if you realize this or not, but the word Christian only appears three times in the Bible. And this is one of them. The two other places, the first place is later on in the book of Acts, chapter 26, uh, verse 28, uh, King Agrippa. Paul is preaching to Agrippa. And there's a certain point where King Agrippa says to Paul, he says, Paul, you've almost persuaded me to become a Christian. And then Peter later would write and refer to those who might suffer as a Christian. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him, let him uh, commit himself to God as a faithful creator. So only three times in all of the New Testament. I think that's kind of interesting considering how you know, that, that label has, has obviously stuck and become the, the primary way that we who follow Jesus have been identified throughout history. But it appears only three times. The word... Christianos, it means basically a Christ follower. Some say it means, uh, you know, somebody who's like Christ. You, you might be able to get that out of it, but, but probably more directly, it means a Christ follower. And so we want to look at the kind of the big question I want to address is the question of why did they call them Christians? What led them to put that label on them? So that, that's basically what we're going to look at. And there are a number of reasons. The first one, I think, and the most simple one, is that it was because first and foremost, they carried on their lips the name and the message of Christ. So as the people of Antioch Would encounter these people, they were talking about Christ. They were talking about their relationship with Christ, undoubtedly. They were talking uh, undoubtedly about what Christ had done for them. They were verbally communicating the message of Christ. And so when they opened their mouths and spoke, they were identifying with Christ. So that was that was certainly a part of it. But beside the verbal aspect, their lives were living out their devotion to Christ. You see, these people who were called Christians, these people lived differently. And that was the puzzling thing. It's like, you know, who are these people? They're they're it was evidently hard for, for the people of Antioch to put them in a category. They didn't seem to fit in any of the, the typical categories. So they come up with a new name for them. But, but what I want to look at is some of the things that distinguished them from the culture around them and from the other religions around them, because there was a stark difference. Yeah. So, what were those distinguishing factors? Well, first of all, their religion was not isolationist nor was it idolatrous and and this these were kind of the two positions at the time now the isolationist were the jews so even though they you know the people would understand there's some kind of connection to the jews yet they were very different than the jews because the jews were very much isolationist they were it didn't mean that they didn't you know engage in the culture in the sense that they you know, participated in life in the community. They worked as, as merchants and they worked in, you know, all of the typical places. But what it means is that they were a, like a, beyond that, they were a very closed community. And Peter, of course, communicated that. Remember when we read there in, in Acts chapter 10, when he's going to go into the house of Cornelius, he says, you know, it's unlawful for a person who's a, who's a Jew to, to go into the home of a Gentile. So they were isolationist in the sense that they had no close associations with anybody who wasn't Jewish. They would have casual contact, uh, depending on how religious they were, you know, you can read in some of the rabbinical literature instruction for the people like, you know, if you're walking through the marketplace and and your robe happens to rub against a Gentile, make sure as quick as you can when you get home to get washed off because you've become defiled. So that was the attitude. They were isolationists. And then the other option really was idolatry. Because all of the ancient religions were, to some degree or another, idolatrous. But this group of people was neither. They were neither isolationists like the Jews, nor were they idolatrous like the Greeks. But they actually uh, freely associated with everyone but never engaged in the idolatrous practices of the pagans. So they were different. They were, they, they were not, you know, that, that group of people that said, you know, keep away from us, you might contaminate us, you might, you might defile us. They weren't like that. They kind of just went in and, you know, intermingled with everybody. But yet they did not engage in the idolatry that the culture around them was immersed in. So, so that's the first thing. The religion was not isolationist nor idolatrous. Secondly, they were a multi-ethnic, multinational, socially and culturally diverse community. And and this is very unique too, especially for the time. But believe it or not, it's also unique in our day and age. Back in those days, most religions were based around uh, nationality. And so, you, you know, you're just sort of born into uh, a people group and they have their religion and that's how you get your religion. There was very, very little um, conversion that took place in those days. Some people did convert over to Judaism from paganism, but for the most part, people just stayed in their religion. And you know, that that's actually true today as well. Sometimes we don't realize it, but if you think of the what some people call the you know the great religions of the world buddhism hinduism islam of course christianity judaism those are generally the five that people talk about with every one of them except christianity you find that they've pretty much remained where they originated that's their base and they pretty much are just made up of people of you know the particular nationalities. It's only, when you really look at it, it's only the Christian gospel that transcends these borders. Now, of course, the way the other religions, the way they populate outside of their national boundaries is they populate through immigration, generally speaking, but not Christianity. Christianity crosses borders through conversion people from those other religious faiths that they were born into they become christians and then they have a christianity that is in a sense indigenous to their culture so this is what's going on in antioch unlike jerusalem now jerusalem the church in jerusalem was predominantly if not entirely jewish And if it wasn't Jewish in the ethnic sense, it was absolutely Jewish in the religious sense. So the church in Jerusalem was made up of people who were formerly Jews by religion and probably most of them ethnically as well. But now they're believing in Jesus, the Messiah. In Antioch, it's a a totally different story. In the 13th chapter of Acts here, we get a picture of The church in Antioch where we have a description of of some of the leaders. So there in chapter 13 verse 1 it says this and I want to use this as an illustration of this point. It says now in the church that was at Antioch there were certain prophets and teachers and now it names uh, five people and here they are Barnabas. Now we've already met Barnabas but let's remember Barnabas was a Cypriot Jew. So he's from Cyprus but he's ethnically Jewish. He's a Levite, according to scripture. He would be known as a Cypriot, mainly. Then we have, beside Barnabas, we have Simeon, who is also called Niger. Niger means black. So presumably, Niger was a black African. Lucius is a North African from the area of Libya. So with with all of them right now, we see that there's, there's ethnic diversity but then we have a reference to this man, Menaean. And Manan, uh, it says concerning him that he was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. So what that tells us about him is he's from the upper classes. Herod, of course, the family of the Herods were the ruling dynasty at the time. So he was brought up alongside of Herod the Tetrarch, which would infer that he was from those upper classes. So you have a multi-social and and cultural diversity. You have multi-ethnic and national diversity. The last person that's mentioned in the list is Saul. And Saul, of course, was a Jew from Tarsus. So this was unique. This was different. You would not normally find this kind of thing. And so this is where they would have had a distinction as well in the, the culture. Thirdly, they had a new sexual ethic. Now we are, as a, as a culture currently, we are rapidly moving toward a culture with a similar sexual ethic to what they would have known in first century AD Roman culture, a culture where there were no taboos regarding sexual behavior, and it was basically a free-for-all just as it is becoming today. Becoming. I mean, it almost entirely is today. So very similar. But now this group of people, these, these, these ones that are identified by them as Christians, they are living differently. They used to live according to the sexual ethic of the culture, which was basically do what you wanted, but then something's happened with them. They've gone through a change, and now they're living differently, so they're no longer engaging in adultery, fornication, homosexual activity, pedophilia. Uh, those whatever other you know sexual experiences there were they are now reserving the sexual relationship for the marital relationship and they're doing this because they now understand that their bodies are the temple of the holy spirit and the possession and dwelling place of god so th- so they understand that everything's changed with them so now their behavior changed. they're uh they're living according to a new sexual ethic Also among them, women were given a place of equality and honor in the home and and in the community that really didn't exist in the ancient world. Now, among the Jews, there was a certain amount of honor that went to the women. And of course, under just strictly the Old Testament, there was some honor. But you have to remember that the, the group in the New Testament called the Pharisees, they had created all of these other extra biblical rules and things. That really were in some many cases they there was a bias against women and and maybe you've heard this before but one of the things that the devout Jew would pray in the morning you know beginning you know with thank you God I'm not a Gentile the very second thing on the list was thank you God I'm not a woman so you know this was the attitude among the Jews and among the the rest of the culture among the Greeks especially it was much much worse than that as bad as that was. There was no respect for the marriage covenant. Men were pretty much free to move about and engage sexually with whoever they wanted to. The women were oftentimes, you know, kept back from the pursuits that they might want to engage in, and, and all of that was happening there. So, so now here's a new community with, with a different thing happening for women. And also in this new community. There is a love for family, especially children. And this is different. The family in this culture would have, you know, more positive in in coming from the Jewish side, but out in the larger culture, the family was, it was more utilitarian. There wasn't a strong emphasis on the love component.
0: the month of April, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. Teens today are faced with challenging questions about the Christian faith. How can they believe that the Bible is true? Who cares if you're a boy or a girl? Isn't love just love no matter what? In her book, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin addresses these and other questions that teens ask themselves or are confronted with. If you're a parent, grandparent, guardian, or friend, this book will make an excellent gift for a tween or teen to help them tackle the challenging questions of this generation. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer about Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Acts. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.